have begun examining 1 Peter, we have we began last week studying 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. <clears throat> so I I ask you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. First Peter chapter one, verses three through five. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant and infallible word. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would let us behold this morning wonderful things from your word. O Lord, Holy Spirit, God, mighty God, Spirit of God, come Come and bring new life. Come and transform. Come and transform us into the image of our Savior. Come, O God, come and cause your word to take root. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thomas Goodwin, one of the great English Puritans, said, Jesus died in order to make us his friends. Though he could have made new friends for himself so much more cheaply. Uh, indeed, this is true. And, and indeed, it is true that Jesus came to make us his friends. Jesus said that to his disciples. You are my friends. We remain Jesus's friends. And this epistle is written to the friends of Jesus. Peter and Peter is writing to the church and all those who are within the church are the friends of God. Those who are Children of God are friends of Jesus Christ. So he has written to this, this, this audience. He has identified who he is writing to. Elect exiles, strangers, aliens, foreigners living in a foreign land. Uh, they are of the dispersion. They are Christians who have been dispersed throughout uh, the various regions, but specifically within the northern half of Turkey, uh, during that time at a distance from the center of the church's activity in Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the center where most of the apostles were, with the exception of Paul, who was often on missionary journeys. Their identity in the world was of vital importance, and that's why Peter writes to them. And and it, it, it is in direct and sharp contrast to their identity uh, in the world, in Jesus Christ, pardon me. In the world, they are strangers and aliens and exiles living. Uh, they're, they're foreigners living in a foreign land. But, but in, in Christ, in the Lord, they are sanctified for the spirit. They are eternally loved and known by God. They are, they are adopted by God into the family of God for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, there's more to be said there. Paul, Peter will expound uh, upon their identity in God and in the anointed one, Jesus Christ. 
in, in their separation from the world and sin uh, and through the Holy Spirit. And he will expound upon that identity and what kind of life that calls for in believers. Because how you live the Christian life and, and what direction you'll take in the Christian life is largely informed by who you are in in Christ. John Calvin says this about the subject. The main object of this epistle is to raise us above the world in order that we may be prepared and encouraged to sustain the spiritual contests of our warfare. For this end, the knowledge of God benefits avails much. For when their value appears to us, all other things will be deemed worthless especially when we consider that Christ and his blessings are for, for everything without him is but dross. And so Peter writes this epistle, and epistles are really rather ordinary things. They are letters. They, are, they always come in a specific apostolic epistolary formula. There is a greeting or salutations. There is a blessing that is offered. There is a theological or a series of theological declarations. And then there are ethical obligations commanded, uh, the imperatives of, of the Christian faith. The declarative passes to the normative. This is what is required of you and you are called to be. And then there is a summary and miscellaneous directions and a final farewell. That's, that's how epistles go. It's very much like modern letter writing, of course, uh, maybe that's a, a misnomer or, or an oxymoron, modern letter writing. We don't write letters anymore. We write emails and we and we thumb texts. But letters are a lovely thing to receive. They tell you something uh, a little bit more tangible about a person's love and concern for you. Uh, they're, they're exciting to receive. I love receiving letters or cards. They tell me someone has thought uh, enough to take the time to write. Well, verse 3 through 5 begin a, a largely doctrinal section, verses 3 through 12. And 3 through 9, verses 3 through 9 is one, all those verses are one sentence. One long sentence, one of the longest sentences in the Bible. I, I think that Paul has that in first chapter of, of Ephesians, has that, uh, that, 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 that longest sentence. But Peter has a very long sentence here in verses three through nine, and, and it concerns salvation and its benefits, and it concerns one particular subject, and really only one particular subject is what we intend to speak about this morning, and that is hope. Hope. What do we know about hope? What do we hear about hope? We, we hear lots of things, especially when someone like Damar Hamlin goes down on the football field while people say prayers and hopes to you. Good thoughts. Well, this section really only concerns that very subject of hope. And hope, biblically, is not really like any kind of earthly or human-authored sort of hope. For for a human being, for for a sinner on this side of of glory, hope is wishful thinking. I I think that's the best description of it. I'm thinking about the future. I'm thinking about tomorrow. I'm thinking of later events, maybe even today. And I'm I'm hopeful that something will come about. And what I'm essentially saying is I have a wish about my future circumstances and how they'll fall out. I have no control, really, or I have some limited control over those events. 
but I don't have any lasting control or, or intrinsic ability to bring it to pass. That's hope based in human experience. And yet biblical hope is very, very different. The kind Peter is talking about is not a possible expectation upon based upon criteria that may yet occur, but may not. But rather biblical hope is one that speaks about an active, eager, certain, confident expectation based upon criteria that has already been met and declared by God. And that's why the Apostle Peter says you've been born again to a living hope. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is not hope that is conjectural or, or, or based upon something that is transient or open to possibilities. Rather, it is based upon the absolute certain expectation of God's completing and fulfilling his promises. Well, hope is an interesting word. And I'll, I'll tell you that in the human condition, if you lose hope in the midst of calamity, then largely or eventually that will end in utter despair. Utter despair is blackness of soul, blackness of days and of moments, zero hope left where you despair of life itself and of strength and ability and vitality. Well, some of us may not be in that position, but some of us may be weighed down with seriously and seemingly hopeless problems this morning. I don't know what they are, failing relationships, job pressures, stress, sin, temptation, discouragement, anxieties, economic pressures, overwhelming debt, obligations, too many responsibilities, not enough time, crushing worry and fear, marital strife, jealous, jealousy, joblessness, loneliness, guilt, sickness, exhaustion, bitterness, confusion, anger, I don't know what your situation may be, but Paul, Peter is writing to a church that is overwhelmed with persecution. Caught in a situation in their current context where they are persecuted for their faith. Uh, they have lost jobs because of their faith. They have men and women deride them on the street because of their faith. They have been called names because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They have lost and perhaps even lost their unbelieving spouses because they have believed in Jesus Christ. They've experienced alienation, loss, loneliness. How do we approach a lack of hope? Well, usually or when we are hopeless about our situation or, or we, we, we think that our circumstances are so overwhelming, what do we do? Well, what we think oftentimes is most of us feel that if we if I just read the Bible more, I'll get my life back on track and I'll experience more of God's blessing. Surely the Lord will cause his sunshine to, to rest upon me and he will, he will surely change my circumstances because that's what he ever lives and does. And, and, and if I pray harder, if I live more faithfully, my life will just be that much better. I'll have greater strength and my life will improve substantially. Where does the Bible promise that? Where does God promise that? This is really where that semi-Pelagian Christian mindset seems to 
come into our, 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 our thinking. And it's so common to believers today. I, I admit that in my, my less than clear thinking moments, that I, I fall into the same framework that, that I'm experienced difficulty. I'm experiencing difficulty in my life or I've found my, that, that, that the Christian life is difficult to lead or, or devotions are hard to perform or, or to carry out. But that what I really need to do is increase in prayer. If I just live for the Lord more or if I was a little bit more faithful, I'd, I'd experience far more blessing. It's, it's often informed by health and wealth preachers who have corrupted the gospel. It, it seeps in. Pelagius denied original sin, affirmed the goodness of humanity, uh, affirming that we can still, we are not dead in our trespasses and sins, but we can still reach out to God. He spoke of the freedom of the will, and we think and, and, and work in some ways in that way. Well, these verses destroy the idea of somehow ginning up hope within ourselves. Destroying our false self-oriented hopes, clarifying that our need is greater than the smoothing out of our troubled lives, because that's really not our greatest need. Less trouble. Less difficulty. Less suffering. More health. A few more years. More sleep. Peter wants to essentially as a good pastor stir us up from our morose self-pity and sad reflection upon our circumstances and suffering and to awaken us to our to our God's great mercy and salvation. And he does that by explaining why Christians should hope, hope in God. And there are four reasons here in this passage this morning, the first of which is the mercy of God, reasons why we should hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. What, I, what, what, what we what we spend will spend a moment or two on is the mercy of God. Firstly, we can hope because of the mercy of God. The Christian has hope because of God's mercy. We are hopeful because of God's mercy. It's interesting what he says here, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reflection of exactly what the Apostle Paul states in 2 Corinthians 1.3, uh, Ephesians 1.3, and what Jesus himself says in John chapter 20, verse 17. And he says to the women, go and tell my brothers that I go to my God and their God, to my Father and their Father. Now, this is not a statement in some way that Jesus is not divine. He is not the son of God. It's not a rejection of his divinity. It's well established throughout scripture. I and the father are one. If you've seen me, you have seen the father. You and I are one in his high priestly prayer. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. His intention is to show us that God is our God. That God is our Father. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. In other words, there is no equation in which our human activity or rationality 
or our philosophical expectations or any of it have in any way fulfilled what God demands or caused new life to spring forth from dead sinners. All of it is of God. If you have new life today, if if Christ has created life within you, none of it is of yourself. You did not cause it to spring forth from dry ground. The grace of God breathed out fresh and refreshing rain, the, the water of life. And that is why you stand in his grace today. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ. Mercy of God is extraordinary. It is vast. It is immense. It is free. It is immeasurable. It is limitless. It is wide and full and deep. The nature of God's activity in saving wicked sinners is that it is purely and only a merciful act. God does not look down and say, I see virtue in that person. I will reward that virtue. I look down upon that person. I I see righteousness and that righteousness demands my grace. No, that's not what God does. God has looked upon humanity and discovered and, and is known of our plight. For we are sinners and we are born in sin. We are guilty of original sin through Adam who represented us in the garden and who failed before God. And sinning one great sin, the soul that sins shall die. And we have found that operative principle in all of our lives. We are dying. We will die. Every last one of us. But there is life in Jesus Christ. And God has not saved us because of an obligation or a parliance or a forgetful overlook of our sins. Rather, it's mercy, good and kind mercy, loving kindness and grace offered to the miserable and the broken and the unworthy. Is this how we think about God when troubles come and hope wanes? I think we have poor memories and we judge the Lord by feeble sense and we fail to trust him for his grace. And we fail to think of the benefits that we have in Jesus Christ. That is the source of every believer's hope and joy in the midst of calamity and suffering. I may see my body just decrepit and and falling apart, growing old, age and the ravages of time so very clearly in my body and in my mind. And yet one thing remains true. This principle will never be shaken. That Jesus Christ has died for me. And because he lives, I will live in him. I will be brought to through the resurrection to stand before him in heaven. I will belong to him for all eternity. That the momentary light affliction that I am currently undergoing is nothing in comparison to the solid weight that God is accomplishing and has accomplished through Jesus Christ and is reserved for me. God's mercy is very much on display in scripture. We judge the Lord and we think that he is not merciful to us. Let me tell you, dear Christian, there is never a moment when God is not merciful to you. 
There's not a single moment in the entirety of your life when God will not in some way have his mercy pouring out of that faucet and his grace will be falling and refreshing and renewing. That mercy is constantly and ever, ever turned towards you. It is never turned away. It never runs up short. It is never shut off. Second Corinthians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. When the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, and the washing of regeneration and the new renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the Christian hopes, and we hope in God because of the mercy of God. We hope, secondly, in the new birth. The Christian finds reason to hope in God because of the new birth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again. What's in view in that word? What does that mean when Jesus in the upper room, or not the upper room, but in, in, in a room, spoke with Nicodemus and said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus further explained, it's regeneration. It's when a person who is dead in their trespasses and sins is brought to life again. They're resurrected, as it were. They pass from death to life. They're reborn. They're made alive again. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and that secret sovereign work, working internally and within our heart to bring new life to dead souls. This is not unlike what John chapter 1 verse 12 and 13 say, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, God is the author of all of this, isn't he? At no point will scripture ever anywhere single out the activity of mankind as the basis upon which we are regenerated or justified. Never. And any doctrine or any church or any other heresy is exactly that. It's heresy. It is another gospel. It's contrary to the word of God and the mind of God and the work of God, the spirit of God. We who are dead in sins have been made alive by God in Christ. We, the dead, are given a new status before God. We're justified, a new relationship to God. We're adopted, a new destiny. We are promised that one day we will be glorified. He has caused us to be born again. It is that transforming moment when someone who is not a believer suddenly comes to a realization that what they have heard about the Bible and about sin and about themselves is true. 
And when they come to recognize this person, Jesus Christ, there's so much I do not understand, but Jesus Christ, I can see in him forgiveness of my sins. I can see in him there is no other hope. I can see in him God's provision for my soul. New life. That's what it is to be born again. The dead are given that new relationship and that new status, that new destiny. Is brought us to new life through the means, the mechanism by which we are brought to, from death to life, made to live again, made benefactors of the first resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the resultant hope will, will not necessarily set us free from troubles in, the, in this life or, or the above-mentioned list of troubles, and there are many, and that's not an exhaustive list. It won't lead to a trouble-free life necessarily, and certainly God may, according to his own sovereign will, make your life just a little bit easier. He may bring refreshing after storms. He may lift you up and restore good health. And he also may not. God is sovereign, and he does as he pleases, and he does what he pleases in order to glorify the, eternal, the, the Son of God. And also to sanctify us and prepare us for glory. Believing in Christ will not necessarily set you on a path to a trouble-free life. There's no promise of that in scripture. But rather a life where troubles cannot in any way affect your salvation and standing with God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ keeps us from collapsing under the weight of sin and failure. And it sets us free from guilt and turns aside the judgment of God and keeps us free from being defeated in our failures and leads us to everlasting life in Christ Jesus. You know, the believers hope, your hope, my hope is pinned utterly upon flowing from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, he has already risen from the dead. He is alive. He is ever living to intercede for us. He's coming again with a full realization of what he has promised, eternal life. So therefore, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and following, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. That's the promise of God. Inner renewal. Inner renewal. New life. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are seen are not seen are eternal. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, if you would find hope in Christ's resurrection, get your eyes off of the temporal and look at the eternal. Take your eyes off your troubles and put them on Jesus Christ. 
Stop complaining about your the way your life is going and the experience of troubles and of suffering that you endure right now. And consider how those things serve ultimately to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and to sanctify you for glory. And then remember that in Christ you have eternal and constant unending joy because he is your inheritance. And all the blessings of God accrue to you through him, including his mercy, his love, his steadfast love, his favor, his grace. This hope, this certain, lively expectation of present and future blessing based upon the promises of God is rust proof. It is sun proof it is weather proof it is fool proof it is failure proof it is sin proof it is evil proof it is fade proof death proof age proof time proof this hope this hope can and will endure all things and you will and you will also endure all things you and your salvation are secure because of god's power his power in your weakness Thirdly, the third reason why we acknowledge within this section as Peter relates them to us that a Christian has hope is because we have an imperishable inheritance. We've experienced the mercy of God. We've been born again to a living hope. But also we have an imperishable inheritance. Look at, look at what he says. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. We wonder, how is this possible? We live in a world where everywhere there is a principle that we can observe that affects every single thing. Death. Death affects everything, doesn't it? Build a beautiful new building and watch its eventual decay. You can build something that will last from generation to generation. Eventually, it's going to need repairs. It's going to need restoration and renewal because all things are dying and decaying. Every single human being will die. Isn't that true? Every single living being from the largest human being to the smallest organism to Great lions and elephants and tigers and all of those great creatures, even the whales of the ocean, everything, even though it may live for decades upon decades, will die. Death rules over everything. Even our sun is atrophying. Energy is dying and fading. Everything, everything dies imperishable, undefiled, unfading. We don't get it. Yesterday morning, I went into the kitchen. I had the delightful prospect of eating a bagel with some eggs for lunch, for brunch. I can never make eggs as well as my wife makes eggs. She is legendary. There won't be a mark on them. They'll be fully cooked. They're glorious, soft centers. She knows how to create eggs, make eggs, not create, but make eggs, cook eggs. So I went downstairs and tried my hand, and of course I made a mess of them. They didn't turn out nearly as good. I overcooked them. She would have been ashamed. I quickly put them onto my sandwich, onto bread, before I before she could come down and see them and judge me based upon my eggs. But 
I went to get a bagel and I wanted to 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 to, to toast a bagel and I I reached in the bag, pulled one out, and there were little green spots on them. And it was on every one of them. And I thought, well, these aren't any good for consumption. I'd better throw them out for the birds. And I did. Of course, there's little bagels all over our backyard now. It takes them a while. But everything, everything decays. Leave something in your in your cabinet long enough, a chocolate bar, and eventually you're, you're going to get moths. You will. It's only a matter of time. Leave something on the counter and watch what happens. Leave a fine meal, well-cooked, perfectly made. It's going to decay. Everything decays and dies. Everything fades. Everything becomes defiled. Everything perishes. And yet God says to a people who are ensconced in a world that is fading and perishing, that is dying and decaying and fading away. God says you have an inheritance in Christ, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And we think in some way that what God has reserved for us is some kind of a substance, a thing to be protected, something to be obtained. But really it ultimately is our inheritance is Jesus Christ. He is our inheritance. The resurrection, uh, uh, the resurrected son of God, all the blessings of our salvation, all of our future glorification, they're all found in his person, the substance of his work. He is our blessing. He is your blessing. All the blessings of the believer that we experience in this life accrues from him, through him, for him, because of him. And he will not fade. He cannot perish for he is alive forevermore. He cannot be defiled for he is holy and harmless. The fourth reason why the believer has hope is because of the power of God. If you see it in verse five, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's power is guiding you and guarding you through faith. You feel there are moments in the Christian life when you have nothing, when there's really nothing feeling wise, nothing emotionally connected to God, when you feel that you are just going through the motions, having grave difficulty, following the Lord, uh, taking up the Bible and reading is, is almost like going to the dentist and getting a cleaning. It's that hard, it's that difficult day by day. Christians experience that. And yet there's one thing that must be true and that will always be true in the life of a believer is that he or she believes in the Lord. Even when we can say, I feel nothing, I'm struggling, I'm, I'm empty. Emotionally, I'm drained, I'm exhausted. Maybe you're not exhausted, but when I think about the Lord and I approach the Lord in prayer in devotion, I, I, I feel far from him. I'd much rather be reading a good book, doing something with my family. This is so hard. 
there are seasons in the Christian's life, it's true, where we will go through difficulty in, in being faithful and getting dragging ourselves out to church on Sunday mornings when life is really very difficult. When reading the Bible is, is hard, hard work. Or prayer does not come easy. God has hemmed you in through faith. One thing will be true even in those moments. I believe. I believe. And you'll be able to say, I, I believe. Uh, my emotions have abandoned me. My affections for God are waning. I am unfaithful, but I believe. I believe in my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith is not feeling. Faith is conviction of things unseen and yet hoped for. Apostle Peter is clarifying that God is our sentinel. He has hemmed us in. His purpose is to make absolutely certain that through his power and the instrumentation of faith, which he has given to you as a gift, you you will persevere and not be overwhelmed, never be shaken, preserved and never permitted to so miserably fail and fall so as to be ruined and altogether without hope. So you need not torment yourself with the fear that your faith will fail. Because grace has led you safe thus far and grace will lead you home. If God has caused new life to spring forth from your life and you're born again through a new and living hope in Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ from the dead, you will not fail. Your faith will not fail. William Doddridge said, Grace first inscribed my name in God's eternal book. Twas grace that gave me to the Lamb who all my sorrows took. Grace taught my soul to pray and pardoning love to know. Twas grace that kept me to this day and will not let me go. God in his eternal mercy, who has caused you to be born again to a living hope and an undefilable, imperishable, unfading inheritance, will not suffer, will not suffer you to be lost. Jesus said, of all those whom you have given me, Father, I have not lost one. I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. He speaks of leaving the 99 and going to get the one that has wandered off the path. Jesus is a faithful shepherd who will not lose you. He will not abandon you. The love of God holds us fast. Keep your faith, because your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You're not strong enough to fall away while God has his hold upon you and is resolved to love you and to shower mercy upon you. The psalmist speaks of the name of God. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The angel of the Lord encompass encamps around about them that fear him. I must acknowledge in the passage this morning that there are some who wait a final salvation and this is a foolish idea that is popular throughout the ages and certainly even within our own time. A future salvation not yet granted to them today in a complete and final justification. Well, God has provided for you. He knew of your need, dear friend, before the foundation of the earth. 
God has provided for you. He has provided salvation and it was made in obedience and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not based upon your obedience, death and resurrection, but the obedience, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I said, before God created anything within the eternal counsel of the Godhead, God provided his grace to all those for whom Christ would die. For all who suffer, for all who are elect exiles, for all aliens and isolated Christians, there's, this is an immense comfort. For all who are suffering with besetting sins, for all who contend against the flesh and the devil, for all who are discouraged by their progress in the Christian life, for all who see and feel your need of him, God was long ago aware of your need. And he made provision long ago for you. Your salvation and new birth were not because of your temporal merit, but because of his eternal grace through Jesus Christ. So what a good and merciful God we serve. Our God is a God of hope. And there is substantially more to the Christian life and to the blessings which God provides to us through Jesus Christ yet to be revealed to us at the last day. There's far more to come, dear friend. So how should the Christian respond to all of this? Well, hope in God. Hope in God. Preach to your soul. We have an obligation to always continually cause our rational mind, our biblical mind, our biblically infused mind, filled with the word of God, to preach to our emotional heart that is often wayward and despondent and filled with a sense of our own troubles and despairing and often accusing God of being merciless, judging the Lord by feeble sense. Dear friend, preach to your soul. I am hopeful in my God because of his mercy to me, because he has caused me to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ who is raised from the dead, because he has an unfading, imperishable, preserved, Inheritance waiting for me, and he's going to show me at the end what that is in full. But nothing can take it away. And I'm protected by the power of God through faith. And so faith reminds me that I belong to God. Faith reminds me of the truth of what God has stated in his word. There are times when the devil whispers in my ear, as it were, not not physically or really. I'm not... I'm going to tell you that I've heard audible voices, but I very clearly have felt and certainly have heard complaints against my faith, reasons not to believe, whispers about seeming contradictions and the seeming absence of my God. And yet faith speaks up and my biblical mind says, no, no, you must hope in God for there is no other hope. The things which God has spoken are true. And everything that God has spoken is in Christ. Yes and amen. Dear friend, how can you respond to all of this? Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Isn't that where Peter began? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed means to praise. It, it's, it's, it's praising God. It it's means but the believer is saying, oh, may God be blessed. 
Bless the Lord, all my soul. Bless his holy name. Blessed be the name of God. Let me never forget his benefits. What will matter most to you when you come to your death? When the day of death has arrived, you've reached the end of your life. What will matter most to you? Is it your hope in God and his power, the imperishable inheritance, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his resurrection, the mercy of God, the fatherhood of God, the power of God at work in you? Or will you ask this question, has the miracle of being born again happened to me? And the answer is no, you are without hope. There's nothing for you but everlasting destruction. If you have rejected God's provision for your soul, he would have worked in your life and caused the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to be effectually applied to you such that you would be born again, caused to be born again by and according to his mercy, through his power to an imperishable inheritance in him. Has Jesus Christ been raised for you? Is he your savior? Do you have an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance while your body rots in the grave and your loved ones move on and begin to create a life without you? It will happen, no matter how loved you are in this life. The living must go on living. Do you have an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance of living hope that is being kept in heaven for you? Will salvation be revealed as yours when you pass from this life? Has God caused you, through his mercy, to be born again to a living hope? These are questions of eternal significance. Believer, if those answers are simply that... Jesus Christ is my righteousness. In Christ Jesus, through faith, I have been justified. I hope one day to stand before him, to behold my Savior face to face. And most assuredly, God's word says yes and amen. And you have benefited from that new and living hope through Jesus Christ, who has been resurrected from the dead. And your hope is multifold. And so, dear friend, remember, there is always hope in the Lord. Even when your circumstances do not change, even when you are left with all your troubles still that beset you, there is hope in the Lord. Hope in the unfading inheritance that is reserved for you. Hope in the mercy of God. Hope in the power of God. Hope. Always hope, hope in the new birth, hope in God's future provision for you, hope in the reality that God hears you, he sees you, and he observes your great need. Hope in the Lord.